YA author and bookseller extraordinaire Joy Preble is in the studio today to talk about her seven books, two series, and two standalones. We laugh about lots of stuff pertaining to writing for young adults and how a giant proportion of those readers are actually adult adults. She explains how being a bookseller influences her work and we get another wacky ride on the publishing journey bus from hell. It's a glorious story with as many plot points as her novels. Get ready to take notes, y'all. Not that all that go back to, I think this came out in 2016, so it's not going back really far. That's ancient. <laughs> Thank you. That's where the world changed. The world, oh. Oh. And just like that, the and just like air that. was sucked out of the podcast. Air was studio. sucked out of the All right, Fair, are we good to go? Yes. Are you all right? Yeah, we, we just gotta go. <laughs> okay. Oh my gosh, I blanked out um. on my own character. <laughs> You're Can allowed we? because you have thousands <laughs> of pages that you have to... I'm Jessica Cole. I'm Fulu. I'm Kate Martin-Williams. And this is Effing Shakespeare. By writers. For writers. What do you get when you cross clever, sometimes soaring, sometimes heartbreaking, always beautiful prose with immortality, fantasy, and historical themes? You get signature Joy Preble. Since 2009, when she published the first book in her Dreaming Anastasia series, she's been writing YA novels that will break your heart, restore your hope in the good things life has to offer, and call attention to the ways in which humans fail one another disastrously. Side note, she's a master of the meet-cute. There's a very memorable scene in Finding Paris in a Vegas diner with a Neutron joke and a coconut cream pie that I'll not spoil for you, but I will put it up against any Nick Hornby or Four Weddings in a Funeral scene. YA author Adam Silvera has likened her depictions of plucky teen detectives to Veronica Mars, which is apt because I definitely had similar feelings of escape Sheer donut-popping sweetness diving into Preble's two series and her two standalone books, seven books in all. She's a gem of a writer, a teacher, and a hell of a bookseller, too. We're lucky to have her on the show. Joy Preble, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. What stands out for me after diving into your work is the care you take with such strong young female protagonists. Was that a thing that drew you to, to picking up the pen in the first place? I mean, I think to some extent they just simply come out that way. They come out of my imagination that way, and, and that's where the characters are and that's where the stories are, but it is my preference. Mm-hmm. I like a character with a little bite to her. I like a character who is feisty, although I don't like calling women feisty because, I don't know, there's something sort of slightly sexist about that. But I had trouble, too, when I wrote the word plucky in the introduction, and I thought maybe, is that, a, is that kind of patronizing in a way? I mean, I think it's a neutral word, but it has been used over over time in that same sort I think sort we're of all way. kind of rethinking that, but, yeah, but not yeah. to overthink it too much. I do like a character who is imperfect, who's going to stand up for herself, who is not necessarily fully formed in all her ideas about the world, who's going to have the rug pulled out from under her. Mm-hmm. And um, she's got to see what she, we're going to see what she's made of as she goes along. Could, could we hear from one of those? Could you read an excerpt? I can. I know you mentioned Finding Paris, but since you've read everything, 
I'm going to read you a little bit from It Wasn't Always Like This, which has a character named Emma. And Emma we see in two different ways. We see Emma in her past where she's a much meeker, milder girl to some extent because it's it's way in the past. It starts like around 1913. Mm -hmm. But the other Emma is a very hard-boiled, jaded, private eye in current day. And she has a police uh, detective, Pete Mondragon, who she has met in Albuquerque. And over this hundred years that she's been searching for, for her lost love, Charlie, and solving murders along the way and insinuating herself into these communities. And uh, this is when she decides she's got to call Pete for some help. And it flashes back to their first meeting. Pete Mondragon answered his phone on the first ring. M.O., he said, his voice deep and scratchy. Knew you couldn't resist my charms forever. Forever's a long time, Emma said. They were big on forever jokes. Pete was the only one who understood exactly how long Emma's forever really was, how the moment to moment would stretch into infinity while she stood still. At this particular moment, Emma was quite still, parked at the back end of the enormous Ikea parking lot not far from the church. She wasn't sure how much she planned on telling him. Her gaze wandered to a man in a striped shirt and baggy khakis. He loped by her, a wool beanie pulled low over his forehead. Five rolled-up rainbow-hued rugs poked from the top of the huge plastic bag slung over his shoulder. She'd probably been born around the same time as that guy's great-great-grandfather. What would that man think of his descendants' rugs? Pete cleared his throat. Happy New Year, O'Neill. She watched the guy with the rugs. I think there's been another one, she said. Pete appreciated when she got to the point. He snorted. At least that's what it sounded like over the speaker. She pictured him on the other end, dark hair streaked with gray, 40-something. Thin, ranging toward gaunt, which was hereditary, because the man loved to eat. Not that she didn't like food herself. She certainly did. Just that Pete consumed things with a level of enthusiasm that verged on animalistic. When she'd first arrived in Albuquerque, she'd been investigating a string of girls who'd gone missing in and around New Mexico and Colorado. The kidnappings turned out to be the work of a religious fanatic, as she suspected, though not the Church of Light. The girls, thankfully, were all found alive at his survivalist compound down near Rio Doso. Emma had ended up staying longer in Albuquerque by accident, really. She went on hard news and rumor, stirring the information until a piece of the puzzle fell into place. But her goals were always the same, intertwined too. Find the followers of Glenn Walters. Find Charlie if those same killers hadn't found him already. The murdered girls resembled her, at least in passing, although sometimes she worked other cases for the money or just because. Beyond that, it was an inexact science, a few lifetimes of inexact science, all of them hers. A new identity as a private investigator. It hadn't been hard to fake the credentials necessary to get a license. All you needed was three years of investigative experience, and she had decades, more than enough to allow her to ace the exam and the fingerprinting training, and even to forge her references in proof of previous employment. She'd gotten her most recent license the moment she'd arrived in New Mexico, best to make everything official in case she had to end up with the local cops. Then a girl named Allie Golden went missing. She disappeared on her way home from school not long after the Riadoso incident. She was about Emma's height, with long brown hair and brown eyes. No one would take them as twins, but Emma saw herself in the high school yearbook picture of Allie, the ones on the Have You Seen This Girl posters. 
enough to convince her that it had started up again, that people were tracking her, closing in, but uncertain of her exact identity. And I'm going to skip a little bit. So she investigated, nosed around the pub in the bowling alley on 4th where Allie worked. Too young to serve the liquor, but she could wait tables. Lucky 66, the place was called. It had been anything lucky for Allie. You a friend of the missing girl, the cop had asked her the day she questioned the bartender. She'd seen him watching her out of the corner of his eye, of her eye. Hired by the family, she lied quickly. She could tell he didn't believe her, but she pulled out her license, brazened it out. He looked worn out, this man, but focused. Brown eyes studying hers, thumb rubbing across his stubble chin, a brown trench coat, almost a duster, no wedding ring, but a faint pale line where one used to sit. A deep sandpaper voice, but firm, too, and a sadness behind those curious eyes. Emma was more than familiar with sadness. Pete Mondragon, he said after a long, awkward pause. Emma O'Neill. She held out her hand. Inwardly, she winced. She hadn't used her actual name in longer than she could remember. And then they go on and they mm. eat green chili cheeseburgers. <laughs> Which comes back later. Yeah, that's great. Like you do. <laughs> like you do. Of course you do. You meet someone from 100 years ago. <laughs> so by my count, I was going through our, our history, our podcast guest history, and you've tied with two other writers on the show who are the most prolific so seven books in how many years we start using? Seven books in like 10 years, yeah. basically. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. A lot. So we had Jennifer Matu on the show, another YA yeah, novelist. I love Jen. She's I love great. Jen. She's such a fabulous writer. Um, and it's been really exciting cool. to watch what's happening with Moxie. That is such a trajectory. It's I mean, phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. And then Catherine Center, who's, mm-hmm. who's now about, I guess her eighth book is available for pre-order at the moment. I just saw that. <laughs> yeah. It came in my email. <laughs> Mine too. How does your writing calendar work? Is this sort of a seasonal? Do you know that there's a book in there every year? Or For a while, I knew there was a book in there every year. I mean, the thing is, once you actually sell the first one mm-hmm. and you're now with a publisher, mm-hmm. then it it doesn't become as slow of a process because now you're contracted to do huh. things in a certain <laughs> amount of time. Like and a deadline, you like, mean? Like a deadline. <laughs> like an actual deadline where money has exchanged hands and they expect a product. Uh-huh. So there's been a little slowdown for me the past couple years. And I actually am working on a middle grade oh, fun. right now. Oh. So because I've gotten to like middle grades working at the bookstore. Mm. So I kind of mm. tossed away something else I was working on and, and shifted gears. But yeah, a book a year, I tend to be finishing them right around this time of year. For some reason, it's usually right around Thanksgiving that I am plowing to the end of something. I don't know why. It's just a rhythm thing. I'm yeah. not I'm not really sure. I usually start like in the spring and and then and wow. you know, we come that's here and I'm trying to finish it before the holidays come yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that's a deadline, right? That's yeah. another deadline. It is. Oh sure, yeah. All the, the... It's a self imposed, but yeah. Yeah. Still powerful. Did you know when you first sat, sat down with Dreaming Anastasia that there was going to be this many before you got your, your I book deal? I hoped there would be, but publishing is a 
is a funny, quirky business. So that actually sold as a one book deal. That's a nice way to put it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, It sold as a one book deal. It did. And actually, it's a trilogy that sold one book at a time. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that'll that'll take the life out of you. Oh, my God. So can you tell us what happened? It sold as a, uh, to source books. Mm -hmm. Um, We had talked that there were more books in there, that this saga wasn't finished and that there was, this was the first part where you're going to meet them and kind of set up everything that really ends up happening. Uh, But they said, no, one book and, and please end it so that it could just be done. All right. (laughs) And then in (laughs) yeah, so just end it. And then in the way of publishing, it was just I was essentially nobody from nowhere. But the publicist who was assigned to me liked me. I liked him, and he said, "I want to go." I mean, essentially, what he said is, "I want to go places," Mm. and uh, so I'm going to do more for you than anyone else will probably ever do. And I said, okay, that's fine. And I knew <laughs> so little that I I had no idea. And this is now, we're talking 2009. Yeah. So blogs were really big, big. Mm-hmm. We did a 70-stop blog tour. What? Oh, my gosh. While I was teaching full-time. Julia, that insane. <laughs> and we owned the internet for a while, and this was just in the midst of that fantasy, paranormal, blue-cover book Yeah, phase. I was trying so, to, pin, to place mm-hmm. it against the book that shall remain nameless, or I guess we could just say it. I was thinking about Twilight, right? It had. I had actually, when I wrote this, which I wrote Dreaming Anastasia really in 2005 and six. Okay. I, I mean, it wasn't out yet, hadn't read it, although yeah. people have certainly compared it to it. But I think some things are just sort of in the ether. Yes, you know, yeah. And, and that's the way they go. So the short okay. version is it broke out. It, yeah. This book broke out. It came out September 1st. Uh, it was on its like fourth printing by December. And then they said, could you write another one by the end of the year? <laughs> you were like, hello. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well... I had started it, but it really it needed it needed to be finished. It needed to be worked on, and uh, and so we settled on. I think March was what we settled on of me finishing book oh two, word. and oh and then book three came after that, and lots of other things happened. But oh, that's fun. That's the short version. I did have the question in here about how you pitched. Did you go to an agent or did you go straight to Sourcebooks? Were you- Sourcebooks by then was pretty much a closed house. And mm-hmm. I knew I wanted to publish with bigger houses. And mm-hmm. so I had been pitching to agents. Okay. And this one actually, Dreaming Anastasia. You got to remember the time frame. So this is like 2006-ish. I actually, the pitch that got this book an agent happened on Super Bowl Sunday of 2006. Oh my gosh. And I was pitching it basically as don't laugh as Buffy but without the vampires because of the- <laughs> <laughs> So that's yeah. yeah, it's 2006. It's like a little time capsule yeah, right there. It is. Yeah. Because Immortal Hottie and Chosen Girl 
et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. Yeah. Which goes to show you the yeah. very, you know, the, the necessity, the very uh, important skill in, in, in boiling down a book to a sentence. You know, mm-hmm. you have to have that slug line that yeah. um, will, will capture someone. And I didn't it's... have that at first. And when I went to that, people, people asked for it. So, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, because I was wondering, because it does do so many things. It's, I mean, I don't, you can't dismiss the suspense that's a part of the series. Mm-hmm. And then it's very historical fiction feeling to me with the the overthrow of uh, the Russian czar. And, um, mm-hmm. and in an effort, I think a lot of authors try to cram all of that into a query, which could be a, a major stumbling block because your publisher, well, your agent and then the agent knows that the publisher wants to know where this book is going to sit on a shelf mm-hmm. and you can't have all of that jammed in no. into one query. You, you kind of need to know exactly where it will sit. And it sounds like you did <laughs> once you got, to I, once sentence. I figured it yeah. out because yeah. I had pitched it a few months before and it wasn't going as well. And then this one got me an agent Yeah, and, and we kind of went on from there and it took a while to sell it, to find the right house for it, but we did. Yeah. Yeah. And lucky for us. And lucky for us. <laughs> lucky for us. Yeah. I guess maybe we just go to the question about how we got from source books then to your next series. Ah, okay. Well, yeah. that's a good that's a good and simply answered question. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, the editor that actually acquired the book left. This this whole the Dreaming Anastasia series has a whole history of editors kind of leaving and and mm. and uh that cycle of things don't you do. doesn't yeah. make yours any less compelling but it's it's just astonishing to me like great books really good books with these really circuitous it, well, it, you know it's a three book series circuitous is a good word because it's a three book series with <laughs> I think four or five editors, some of them assistants. Goodness, um, so, so the only one really keeping track of the continuity of all of those 900 pages over three books was me. Right, I, I, I would right. be, I had to be like my own little sort of continuity Bible keeper. Like, okay. <laughs> yes. What did Ethan yes. look like on page 12 of book one? And is it the same now? Is it gray eyes with green flags, it's blue eyes? Blue eyes. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it was yeah. me flipping through pages of yeah. things. But the next editor who came in um, then left but ended up at um, Soho Press ultimately. Oh, wow. And so Dan oh. Dan Ehrenhaft is the was one of the editors of Dreaming Anastasia. Mm-hmm. And he went over after a few little stops to Soho Press, which was starting Soho Teen. Oh wow! And he said, "I'd like to work with you again." And I said, "Okay." <laughs> Twist my arm. Twist my arm. <laughs> and so I think I and you will hopefully remember what happened on page yeah, twelve. Well, <laughs> we I was still finishing the last of the Anastasia series and then we started on the Sweet Dead Life series for Soho and and kind of went that way and then I ultimately did it wasn't always like this for him as well oh cool so returned back returned back after a stop at Harper for a a brief stop stop at Harper for for standalone (laughs) finding Paris yeah Yeah, so it's been a little yeah circuitous again but it's interesting 
Yeah, yeah you have a you you are a wealth of this sort of knowledge, which is good to have. I think our listeners like to know about the different ways p- books get picked up and and how a lot of it is something for which it can you know we can't plan. No, you <laughs> cannot. You cannot plan. You cannot plan for editors leaving. You cannot plan for uh, your publicist leaving just as you start on. Um, a well-anticipated book tour Mm -hmm. and you finding out that half of the things that you're going to haven't quite been exactly (laughs) confirmed. (laughs) So... Wait, was this the first? Was this the first guy who was so gung ho? Well, the first, the first guy who was so gung ho, I think, yeah, did leave, and then somebody else wasn't quite as prepared, and all of that. But then, you know, now the first guy I've gotten to see going to um, publicity meetings for the bookstore for Brazos. Oh, so I've taken meetings with him. Oh, fun. At Hachette now. Yeah, so it's kind of, it's a very small world. It is. And so you should be very nice. That's what it seems like, too. Like, circuitous, but also small. And and I guess it, again, reminds me that it's all about relationships. Because if that first editor and you hadn't gotten Mm -hmm. along so well, then, you know, it might not have happened at Soho, but once he moved there, but because... Yeah, because you're so lovely as I'm well as so talented. I'm so lovely as well as talented. That is what everyone says. That is exactly true. It is so true. But no, and then, like I say, now you see, now I see them in a different capacity as well because I do mm-hmm. the buying, I mm-hmm. do the um, all of the kids' events, and so I'm the one that all these people are now going to for something different. So it's interesting seeing so many of them in different capacities right and um yeah how does your work as a as a bookseller how has it changed or influenced the way you write or has it i don't know that it's changed the way i write but it certainly has broadened what i read and it has broadened Mm -hmm. my sense of getting to see so many authors coming through although I mean I guess I always did because I go to lots of events Mm -hmm. and that hasn't changed and as an author I've been to tons of festivals and conferences so I see people present but getting to take different authors on school visits and do all that kind of thing I do see their presentations I do see how they've written in a slightly more intimate way and so it definitely it's like its own little master's course in in how somebody else is doing it and how somebody else is pitching themselves so I don't know if it's changed the writing but it definitely has kind of broadened my scope like I say I'm working on a middle grade right now I didn't think I'd ever do that yeah yeah and it immerses you in the culture in a way that someone who wouldn't who isn't a bookseller probably or would have to work harder to do to Mm -hmm. be to be that involved and all all Right, parts surrounded. of that, the book writing and book selling process which is an author showing up oftentimes at elementary schools or exactly festivals and being able to be in front of a crowd and and make a presentation that um is interesting and and you know salient to the times and those sorts of things is a, is a skill mm-hmm. you know and the better you you are at that the better your book will sell yeah. is, there's only mm-hmm. two rules for any public presentation by oh, the way let's hear them it's don't don't be boring and don't be a jerk. And <laughs> that is 
That it, actually, I usually use a different word than jerk, but I mean, basically, <laughs> that's. You can use it here. You can all right. Hear, well, so don't. <laughs> Don't be boring. Don't be a douche. It's really how, <laughs> how I usually say it. And I just think it covers it covers everything. It is baffling how many people fail at one or the other is, of those things. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can we talk a little bit about Finding Paris? Because I loved the book. I'm so glad you loved that book. I that do. book makes you work a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah, it yeah. does. In a great in a in a really great way. And it, I found it very satisfying. Um, and I want to talk about a fun part of it before we get into some of the serious part. But you are so good at writing the meet cute. The well, thank you. Oh no, it's like so. It's one of the best meet. It's oh, thank book. you. Really great. I went into a, a rabbit hole because ultimately I want to ask you where these ideas come from for the meet cutes. Um, um, and 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 you do it well as you read from. It wasn't always like this. It wasn't a romantic meet cute, but the no. time when Emma meets. Pete was really great too you know that it doesn't mm-hmm. always it's, it's not only romantic meetups that can be mined for, for a really great scene but I went down this rabbit hole and found this YouTube video have you seen the Christmas film Holiday? Yes do you know the scene where Eli Wallach is the he's this old oh my god I love Eli yes. Wallach in that movie I so I could watch Eli Wallach all day long in that movie. Uh, you could you could do worse things. There's a Hanukkah avenue. party with all those old guys in that movie. <laughs> it's just <laughs> I know I called it a Christmas movie. It's a holiday movie, obviously, because it's called the holiday. But yeah, it was great. And so it was just a. It, I I wanted to find out how, what's your inspiration and how you write those. Well, I mean, movies like that and all the other rom coms are certainly mm-hmm. inspirations mm-hmm. for that. But in terms of a Leo meeting with, in terms of Leo meeting Max, um, I I knew he was science nerdy. Uh, I knew who he was. And I just had, I knew he had secrets as well, that it wasn't that he knew more, as you find out, than than what she thinks he knows at that point. But Mm -hmm. I just wanted her to be able to be smart in that scene and so they riff with those physics jokes Mm -hmm. and then I wanted him to also I just I like all my characters imperfect so I wanted him to have you know his little scar which gets explained actually and I wanted him to have that drip of mayonnaise down his arm (laughs) and I wanted that to relax I just knew as I was writing that's going to relax her because Mm -hmm. he's imperfect because although she's interested in him for partly on the deer from Paris and partly because she is interested in him, his imperfection makes Mm -hmm. her a little less afraid of everything else that you don't know yet, but you know that there's some things that are not right in that, in that world. Yeah. You do. You don't waste anything. There's very little in your, in your scenes, especially that first chapter that is, 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 throw away it's all very pertinent because we learn also from that um that leo her attention to detail is um part of her character and also you know in my view sort of defense mechanism if she can Mm -hmm. be taking in the scene around her um and noticing the mayo and 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 being that quick with the comeback and having having the joke you know Mm -hmm. um we learn a little bit about her too not just about 
Max's Imperfections. Right. It was really right. great. Really it's great. the sparest book that I've written hmm. where I really, I just, that book, first of all, came out very fast. That book wrote faster than any book. It plotted oh, really? out in a weekend. And then it wrote really, it, well, I was at a writing, I was at a writing retreat. So I have to say that it wasn't just amidst everything else I was doing. That's still very quick. But it was very quick. It was very quick. I knew it was right when I wrote it. It didn't, um, it did change somewhat, certainly in uh, revisions and editing, but it, the essence of the story was there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that story actually had a weird inspiration if we have time for it I don't know go for it yeah. yeah so we were driving yes. up to Dallas. I mean it's a really dorky inspiration but <laughs> we were driving up to Dallas and we stopped we don't always stop but we stopped at a place called Sam's restaurant it's like in Fairfield I think okay it's not it's past the Bucky's off by a number of off, off 45 yeah, okay. yeah and it's one of those like places that has a pie buffet and um <laughs> A pie buffet. A pie buffet. <laughs> all like all you can eat pie. All you can eat pie, sir. Yes. And you're talking about dessert pie. Dessert here. pie. Yeah. 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 Did you, did you think she's <laughs> not that numerical no, no, no. value? No. Remember when we were? Remember when we were in Austin and we were at uh, oh, the restaurant okay. and it's like pizza pie we had a pizza pie and they call it pie on the, the waiter menu. was like what kind of pie, pie can i get you and food was just dumbstruck for like, 30 I, seconds I, yeah i didn't we, we went, i need to have dinner right? first yeah yeah we were in this hipster Italian restaurant. That's and, too and, funny. And it's a pie. It's yeah. a pie and cocktails. Yeah, like. pie and cocktails. Ooh, that yeah. sounds good. See, yeah, but only like, if it's actually like blueberry. Yeah, le- yeah, yeah, lemon meringue with uh, old fashioned. You know. So I would totally do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're there. We're yeah. there. So, so, so this was a all you can eat, all you want to eat, pie? all you can stuff in your stomach pie dessert pie buffet <laughs> sounds like yes we need to take a run yes here. it's yeah. only at, it's only at lunch it's part of the lunch buffet actually okay. so it's a little exaggeration but the lunch buffet includes the pie buffet and it's about 10 different flavors yeah it's really good wow. so but that's not the point of the story <laughs> it was the pie <laughs> that was the point of my story <laughs> Or your story. <laughs> Although the pie does come into the book. It does. Actually. So the pie. Yeah. So the pie, actually, the coconut cream did come into the did come into the book. But so I go to the bathroom and in the stall, you know, there's often graffiti. But in this particular bathroom, somebody had written on the stall. And I forget the girl's exact name, but let's just say it was Susie. Uh-huh. So it was like, Susie, call me. And she leaves a number. <laughs> So I do, but there's no answer. It's just a, you, you know, did, you really I do. Yeah, of course. Oh, I want to great. find out. Oh, but great. beyond the, okay, I'm going to call and see what, who's at the other end of this number, was just this germ of an idea that mm-hmm. by the end of the weekend, as we were coming back from Dallas and not stopping for Pie Buffet, I, I thought, I thought <laughs> what if there were this idea formed, what if there were two girls and they were sisters in my head right from the beginning and they were going on some kind of road trip and they stopped 
And what if one of them disappeared, went to the bathroom? And then I decided never to really start this book in the bathroom. But, <laughs> but what if one of cooler them... Cooler heads prevailed. Cooler heads prevailed. And what if one of them disappeared and then left a note yeah. and left the yeah. other one sort of stranded there? Because that just seemed to come from somebody possibly giving a call for help from the bathroom stall, which seems like, is that their stall? Do they always... <laughs> go there I don't know but that's a kind of goofy funny beginning to what turned out to be probably a very serious not probably to a serious story with with a serious core to it yeah let's talk about sisters for a second because I read Finding Paris and then well it's a sister and brother in this sweet dead life but like right after one right after another and there are these ride or die Mm -hmm. sibling relationships and I started thinking, I thought it seems like there's a ton of, you know, YA that explores sibling dynamics and literary fiction often doesn't. And Interesting. that's too bad because it's such a great way to explore non-romantic mm-hmm. bonds. Is this, is this part of what drew you to YA or what, what is it about? I think it's, it, I think, sure. you know, one of the reasons you write is not only to write what you know, as everybody says, but also to write what you don't understand yet. And I think sibling relationships always fascinate me. I actually don't have a sister. I have a brother, Mm -hmm. but we have a kind of up and down relationship and always have uh, since closer to adulthood. And I, you know, it's a relationship that you don't choose. No, right. It's a relationship with someone that you may or may not have anything in common with other than your blood connection Mm -hmm. or your step-sibling connection. And it can be so fraught with things. And I don't know, do both of you have siblings? I have two older brothers. Yeah. And is it fraught? Is it fraught? No, no, it's completely fine. Everything's great all the time. It's lovely. It's flowers (laughs) and pie buffet. Pie buffet. Peanut butter. And peanut butter no, all the time. It's I would say for sure it's fraught. It's fraught a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a shared history, um, but sometimes mm-hmm. that's all that's in there. You know that's the, yeah that's the commonality mm-hmm. and and we share a parent. <laughs> yeah, we share right? we share a parent. That we is... grew up in the right. same house and mm-hmm. we have the same parents. Their end of the epistle. Yeah. So I like to see it. And and in both of these cases, uh, Leo and Paris, for example, would do pretty much anything for Mm -hmm. each other. Mm -hmm. And I think the same thing definitely holds true in The Sweet Dead Life. My quirky Mm -hmm. Houston love note. (laughs) (laughs) And, And so I just, I find it fascinating because it is, I think I'm writing differently for those siblings often than, than a situation where, you know, my brother will tell people a story about hey you want to know about the time she tried to hold my head under at the swimming pool (laughs) you know (laughs) so it's it's a point of endless fascination for me Mm -hmm. and I guess it just comes out in the writing well it's it was very real I mean I I do have a sister and and we are very close even though we also can be our worst selves around each other and to each other but I, I really appreciated that well, thank you. Thank you. And like I say, you know, Jenna and Casey, Casey would, Casey does do anything for Jenna. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. What, what 
is your relationship to readers as a YA author? And can you speak to maybe, I'm sort of imagining that being a different sort of relationship than someone who writes straight up adult fiction. I think one of the things you have to remember before I answer Mm -hmm. is that probably people change in the percentage, but I would say at least 50 to 65%, maybe more of readers of young adult fiction are actually adults. I've heard those numbers, yeah. And and Mm -hmm. so uh, there's a different relationship between uh, me and those readers sometimes than the designated readers. I get lovely fan mail from the, you know, little emails and, and, and whatnot when I've got a new book out from from the actual intended teen audience and certainly some from adults as well, but it's slightly different. They approach the stories different. They have different baggage mm-hmm. that they, or lack thereof, that they bring to it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, adult readers will sometimes say things, and this is across the board to YA authors like, well, she should have just told her mother. <laughs> and, and we often all collectively bemoan the the just absurdity of that response to, well, yeah, I mean, I guess she should have. But then, A, the story would end on page two. Yes. But were you ever 16 or 15? And, exactly. And you don't. So as opposed to... Like Dreaming Anastasia fans who, when they read it, were 14 or 13 and were just creating fan clubs and doing really fun stuff. And it's just a delight. Mm. And some of them I know now still, and they've, they've aged up. You know, right. it's 10 years later. So right. now they're, they're actual young women. Mm-hmm. And, and it's nice. Oh, yeah. that's really great. What has changed as you approach this middle grade book? Which is something I didn't know you were doing, so I just thought I'd ask. It's a secret project that's no longer secret. (laughs) It's So this is a time travel middle grade, and it's basically about a guy named Henry whose parents are secret secret government time jumpers who kind of nudge things so bad things don't happen in the future. They go into the past, and Henry believes that they want him to follow in their footsteps and do this, and... Henry really wants a dog and to be a veterinarian. He's 12 years old. He, this is what he I wants. And so he takes a jump of his own to nudge his own future. And, of course, it goes not the way he's planned. <laughs> and he ends up having to basically save the world along with a girl named Allie while still trying to get his homework done and other things. Oh, man. So that's... <laughs> It's a lot. It's a lot of fun, and and right now it's called Allie and Henry and the Great Wide World. But I don't think that title's going to change. It's going to stay the same. I love it. Do you have time for a a little short answer round? I do. Our category is opposites, and it's inspired by Mark Haber's opposites that we we learned about in Reinhardt's Garden, a book that we absolutely loved this season. What is the book that turned you on to reading as a kid? And is there a book that nearly turned you off that you were made to read? There actually was no book that ever turned me off that I was made to read. There were books that I maybe didn't read, like Moby Dick, (laughs) that I was assigned to read. But I'm going to skip that one. Just skip it. I'm going to pass. Just just pass. (laughs) I think I wrote a book report on it and had never opened it. And so I was good at that. You know, I think if I was younger, it probably would have been Harry 
Potter, but Wrinkle in Time was probably the very first book where I thought, wow, I just love this. I love the whole idea. I love the sibling. Well, there was the sibling Mm -hmm. relationship. Mm -hmm. I love that they're searching for their dad. I love the Tesseract. I love the... I probably loved the moralism of it as well. Mm-hmm. I just, I liked everything How in there. How old were you? I think I was eight. Oh, man. And I went to the local public library <laughs> on a Saturday with my mom. Aww. Thank you, Bizazian Library Aww. in Chicago. And we love libraries. Yes, go libraries. Go Bizazian Branch. And <laughs> we walked in, and I went to the children's section, and... I saw that and I was like, yes, I'm going to read this. This is the one. And I've read it. I think I've read it once every year since. It's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. It totally holds up. That's one you can completely, I feel like, pretend to be eight mm-hmm. while you're reading Absolutely. it. Absolutely. What's a YA book from 2019 for anyone who might still be out there thinking that YA just doesn't do it for them? Oh my gosh. There's so many great books. I mean, it's really hard to pick. Right now, I one that just came out that I love, love, love is called The Queen of Nothing by Holly Black. Mm. And it is the third in the Folk of Air trilogy. And so Wicked King and Cruel Prince came before it. And nobody does uh, fairy lore like Holly Black. Oh, she wow. is at the top of her game in this series. And it's romantic and it's violent and it's clever and it's wonderful. And so even if you think you might not like YA fairy lore, I think you could try that and enjoy it for sure. The Queen of Nothing is amazing. That is a great Isn't it? Well, and it's very apropos for what happens uh, to Jude, the character Mm -hmm. in this third book. She is indeed the Queen of Nothing. Um, And so, yeah, I highly recommend that. Uh, and and a million more, but if you want to do an old favorite, yeah. not that old. I go back to I think this came out in 2016, so it's not going back really far. That's ancient. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. No, that's where the world changed. The world. Oh, oh. oh. <laughs> just like that. And just like air that. was sucked out of the, the air was studio. sucked out of the. <laughs> We you were know, having such a good we were show. Such a good show. <laughs> so back in that year that cannot be named, uh, a wonder a wonderful book came out. The Serpent King by Jeff Sentner came mm. out, and that book will rip your heart out. It will put your heart back in. Mm. It's a contemporary story about three friends. It's set in Tennessee. It is mm. brilliant. It's tragic. It's romantic it's hopeful it's kind of everything and jeff sentner if you're not reading jeff sentner you should read jeff sentner and jeff sentner if you're listening we want you at brazos bookstore i've been (laughs) begging the publisher so what's the least favorite way for you to connect with your readers and your most favorite way my least favorite way is when i am booked to just do a kind of sit and sign at like a big box bookstore. Mm -hmm. So you're just kind of at a card table randomly. Mm -hmm. I don't do as much of that anymore, but Mm -hmm. that's usually my least favorite because you're really not interacting with them, you know, except sort of haphazardly. Oftentimes it's just like, you know, 
an octogenarian wheeling by with an oxygen tank. And you're like, hey, I would love to sell you the third book yeah. of the Dreaming Anastasia series. And apropos of nothing. Yeah, apropos of nothing. <laughs> apropos Boy. of absolutely nothing relevant to you, sir. <laughs> but but I'm a really good bookseller, so you, are, I, yeah. you would love this book. Um <laughs> So the the best way, I mean, I love, I actually love school visits. I love mm-hmm. if they're well planned. Oh, wow. And I think that doing them myself has made me plan them meticulously, hopefully, for authors that I now host mm-hmm. at school visits. Mm-hmm. If they're well planned with the right kids and the right prep, they're wonderful. What what makes a good, a, a well planned visit? Uh, teachers are prepped. The uh. kids know what they're going to see. It's not just the algebra class that didn't want to do algebra that day, just coming in. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so when I do, when I go and do smaller groups, when I do creative writing workshops at a school, those are fun. Mm-hmm. And festivals and things like going to Texas Book Festival is tons of fun. Going to um, Houston Teen Book Con, tons of fun. Yeah, sure. Conferences are fun. So, I mean, I like, I actually like it all, other than, like I say, when it's just that random... You're sitting there like a sitting duck and usually next somebody to the frozen chicken next to the nuggets and <laughs> people come up and you think they're going to ask you something and they just say, where's the bathroom or, you know, I need 900 rolls of paper towels. Can you help me find them? And you actually learn the, the, you know, the geography of the store because you're asked so many times. <laughs> Well, we have learned so many things from you today, and none of them have anything to do with paper towels or chicken nuggets. Well, I hope so. They, they all have to do with the writing Thank landscape, goodness. and we're very grateful. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much, Joy. Thank you. Effing Shakespeare is a production of Bloomsday Literary, in association with Houston Creative Space, hosted by Kate Martin-Williams and Jessica Cole and produced by me, Fu Lu.